Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. On this episode, we are discussing the ACE test, or Adverse Childhood Experience, and how it intersects with drug abuse. For those not familiar with ACE, this study was done in the mid-90s by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. It explored the negative health effects suffered by children from maltreatment and adverse household circumstances. We're going to discuss how these ACE scores negatively affect a person's health and more specifically, how it impacts a person's vulnerability to drug abuse. I traveled to Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania to sit down with Dr. Susan Maloney, an associate professor of nursing, who is also board certified as both a family nurse practitioner and a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Dr. Maloney has provided care to patients at various healthcare facilities in Northwestern Pennsylvania and Ohio. With over 30 years of nursing experience and board certification in psychiatric mental health, I thought she would be the perfect person to have a discussion about drug abuse and the ACE study. So I'm here at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania with Dr. Susan Maloney, and thank you for sitting down with me today to talk about this. Thank you, Alan. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about the history of the ACE study. Tell us what that's about. Interestingly, the ACE study has been quoted as being the single most important public health study that most healthcare providers don't know about. And the reason is because it stemmed from a weight loss clinic in San Diego, California. Dr. Vince Felitti was the director of preventive medicine at Kaiser Permanente, the largest health maintenance organization in the country. And he was tasked with addressing obesity. So he started a weight loss clinic. And this was designed to help people who were three, four, five, six hundred pounds overweight lose weight. And they had great success. People were losing weight hundreds of pounds. And then kind of rather suddenly, the individuals who were really successful at weight loss started dropping out of the program. And he didn't understand it. People who were morbidly obese and were achieving great success just dropped out, never to be heard from again. So he went back and started calling some of those participants back and doing face-to-face interviews on over 200 of the original study participants. And as he was asking questions that pertain to the weight loss study, he was asking things like, how much did you weigh when you were born? How much did you weigh when you entered elementary school, high school, when you started your first period? And he misspoke and said, how old were you when you first became sexually active? And then he said, wait a minute, I misspoke. How much did you weigh when you first became sexually active? And the female participant answered 40 pounds. And I was four years old and it was with my father. And this really stopped him in his tracks because he, to date, had only ever encountered one case of incest, of child you know, sexual abuse. And um, he didn't really know what to do with it, that information because he wasn't a psychologist. He was you know, a chief of medicine. And so he continued with these face-to-face interviews. 
and unexpectedly and overwhelmingly, he continued to hear the same stories. Over 50% of the original study participants disclosed a history of childhood sexual abuse. So then he went to his colleagues and said, you know, we need to continue asking these questions and come up with face-to-face, you know, interviews and, and explore this. So his researchers went to the literature of childhood maltreatment. And at that point, he met Robert, Dr. Robert Anda, who was working for the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. And he said, we have to do something about this. I have a, a study population of 17,000 people that are, you know, disclosing childhood maltreatment. So he partnered with the CDC in the mid-90s, and the history of the ACEs really came about um, in two waves. In 1995 to 1997, they studied, enrolled tens of thousands of of, uh, individuals who came through the doors at Kaiser Permanente and started plugging in the information they got from the literature about childhood maltreatment and came up with 10 categories of childhood maltreatment. Under the category of abuse, there was physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Under the category of neglect, there was physical neglect, emotional neglect. And then there was a category that discussed household dysfunction. So having a, a parent with mental illness, having a parent who was incarcerated, having a parent who abused substances, watching your mother abused violently, and divorce. And so those were the 10 categories that they ultimately became the ACE questionnaire, that they went back to the data and said, you know, we need to start looking at childhood adversity in a, in a completely different way. What are they classifying? As Under the age child? of 18, prior to your 18th birthday, did you experience someone, you know, physically harming you, sexually harming you, and all of those 10, ten categories? What did his data reveal regarding uh, individuals and some of the health concerns? And this was the interesting piece that really needs to grasp all healthcare providers' attention, that the commonality of it, it was really unacknowledged, unrecognized, and two-thirds of the population have at least one ACE. One in five individuals in the population have at least three ACEs. And one in eight individuals had four or more adverse childhood experiences. Now, you're talking the population. You mean the population in his study? or The, the population, population in his study at that point in time, which, you know, statistically speaking, doing any kind of research study, a cohort of 17,421 people is a, an extremely robust study. So it has statistical uh, merit and value. How does that translate into the population of, say, the United States? A statistician would say that that is clearly generalizable, um, you know, when, and that was the, the goal of partnering with the CDC, because when he was at Kaiser with his original study group and finding these results, he said, you know, I have to do something with this and I have to partner with somebody that we can look at tens of thousands of people. So, you know, we, we know what we're dealing with. And they partnered with the Centers for Disease Control. And since that time in the mid nineties, these studies have continued to be Re- reevaluated and restudied. And the, the data bears out that two thirds of the national population has at least one ACE score. So that those numbers carry over across this country, you uh, know, in, in other countries. We understand, I guess, from the, the data you provided that what happens with a child, but how does that translate to how that affects an individual as an adult? That was an important piece of the study as well. 
when they originally started the waves of study in the in 1995 to 1997. Uh, again, they had 17,000 participants, and then they continued to follow them for 15 years. And so these adverse childhood experiences have a direct correlation with adverse negative health outcomes as an adult. What are some of those negative health outcomes? Um, statistically, you have an increased risk of COPD, rest, chronic respiratory disorders, cardiovascular disease, strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, cancer, depression, substance use disorders, alcoholism, and, and drug use disorders. So an individual in healthcare settings, such as a nurse or a doctor who looks at this study typically might say, well, I don't deal with children. So why should this matter to me if I know anything about this? You know, if I have a 40-year-old female in my office who's, let's say, overweight, diabetic, and has high blood pressure and is a smoker, and I tell her to, you know, you need to stop smoking, you need to lose weight, you need to start exercising, I'm just hitting the tip of the iceberg because foundational to Felitti's research what he found with the obese patients in his clinic when they started dropping out of the study, he went back and on those early individual face-to-face -face interviews, the women said to him, obesity was a protectant for me. And, you know, gaining weight was an insulation against abuse. And so all of the negative health behaviors that we have looked at and really stigmatized an individual saying, you know, you're just, a, you know, it's a moral failing you're overweight, you use drugs, you're an alcoholic. We looked at that as, you know, and, and really quite um, judgmentally, as a negative health risk behavior that they engaged in. What Felitti's research found was these were the best attempt at coping with the emotional and physical trauma that the individual had experienced. So that's really what we're talking about is trauma. Yeah, trauma. Yep. In this, you mentioned a little bit about drug abuse. And since the majority of our uh, NASCA members are involved with uh, controlled substances and their controlled substance authorities, or they have a nexus with that sort of uh, business model or maybe data and tech companies, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Explain a little bit more about how this intersects with drug abuse. When we look at psychological, physical, sexual, whatever kind of trauma a childhood, a, a child experiences, the behaviors that they engaged in were really an effort to survive emotionally numb out to deal with that, um, that trauma. And what the research showed that an individual with four or more ACEs was twice as likely to become a smoker, 12 times or more likely to have attempted suicide, seven times more likely to become alcoholic, and 10 times more likely to become an IV injection drug user. So, you know, the fix that people are, are getting with their IV drugs is more than just psychogenic and, and chemical. It was a means to cope with the trauma that they were experiencing. So you're talking about almost a defense mechanism? Absolutely. Now, and it also affects the, the pleasure centers of the brain as well, correct? That's where epigenetics comes in. And, you know, childhood trauma is linked with changing a child's neurobiology. When a, a child is spending all of their energy and their cortisol levels are pumping through their, their brains, it changes their, their neurotransmitters, their circuitry, and they actually become more prone to those dopamine pleasure reward type behaviors to minimize the trauma. 
You mentioned having some of the scores increases your risk or your probability of having health concerns as well as possible potential drug use or abuse. Talk about that a little bit more in terms of what the, what the data tells us regarding your adverse childhood experiences in comparison to potential drug addiction. I'll start with alcohol. Felidi's original study showed that having an ACE score of four or more increased an individual's risk for alcoholism by 500%. Having an ACE score of four or more had a 46-fold increase in the likelihood of becoming an injection drug user at some point in time in their life. How many ACE scores was it? Six or more. Compared to someone with an ACE score of zero. 4,600% increase or 46-fold increase. So what chance does somebody have if they have these high ACE scores? Well, that's where we come, you know, we have to view things with, there has to be a positive, you know, um, all these terrible things happen in childhood. How can we buffer that? And um, what they have developed, just like the ACE score, there's a resiliency score. And we have to start looking at what, how can we plug in some resiliency for these kids? What does that mean, resiliency? Resiliency is essentially your bounce back factor. So, you know, this is, and, you know, resiliency to, you know, the, the childhood trauma that we're talking about is, is certainly well beyond failing a test and someone breaking up with you. This is physical, emotional abuse, neglect, you know, violence in the home. So what the research showed was if that individual, if that child had at least one compassionate person that, that looked out for them, that showed that individual that they cared about them, that could be a coach. A, a camp counselor, a teacher, a neighbor, an aunt, a, a mentor, a Boy Scout leader, you know, anybody that showed that child that they mattered and that they had some level of care and compassion for that child, that's a significant resiliency factor for that child. Now, obviously, the more that we can, you know, input into a child's life to help buffer those things, the better. Are there scores or values that they place on that with the resiliency score? In ter- or is it just not based on an individual. It, it's an individual care? basis, um, but just have trying to address and incorporate resiliency into a child's life is considered protective. It doesn't equate like the ACE score, uh, which is really dose dependent. Meaning, the more ACE scores I have, you know, the higher my ACE score, the more likely I am to develop chronic health, medical health problems, COPD, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, depression, suicide. That is really a statistical value that, that they've tracked for years. Resiliency, we are looking at how can we help increase a child's resiliency. And that needs to be you know, started as early as possible. So how can a healthcare practitioner or anyone else for that matter, look at an individual and say they've got high ACE scores, but let's determine what their resiliency score is? And that would be through screening. And it really needs to be a family approach. So if I had a child that came to me, let's say with asthma or a, you know, a medical diagnosis, I would be talking with the child and the, the parent or caregiver or whoever brought the child in. And hopefully, you know, we would get a conversation about, you know, what's going on in the home and is there any protection? Is there any resiliency? Some of the uh, resiliency questions. I believe that my mother loved me when I was little. I might be living in a home where I'm watching my mother violently abused. But if my mother was able to love me and show me that, that's a, a, a potential buffer. I believe that my father loved me when I was little. I, when I was little, other people helped my mother and father take care of me. 
you know, looking at some of those resiliency things, if we can get to um, that child through screening and then education support, referrals for counseling, referrals for support for the family, parent coping skills, those are all considered protective and helpful avenues for these children. That way, the uh, folks that understand the ACE score, the ACE study, don't feel despair that if they yes. have high ACE scores, they can go yeah. back to their... And this is something probably uh, practitioners, when they're doing screenings, should make sure they're exploring as well so that it isn't just a bleak... Exactly. Outlook. You know, so the, the, you know the, the book isn't written on someone who happens to you know, present to your office with, let's say, six um, ACE scores or you know, a, a score of six on the ACE scale. That would be a matter of education. Look, this is where you're at. This is what your experiences have been. However, you're at an increased risk for further health problems. So let's start evaluating and helping educate the family to reduce as many of those risks as we can. And, you know, if I'm coming at a family with knowing why you started smoking, I, I see this all the time in my work when I, I work in drug and alcohol. and Patients will tell me, you know, I don't know, I just relapsed again. I don't know, I just, you know, I drink because I'm an alcoholic, but, you know, I, I can't stop drinking. But it's helpful. I've seen, like, eyes open when I talk to patients, you know, about their childhood trauma. That's probably why you started using drugs in the first place. You were numbing out to all the stuff that was going on. And it offers, I think, an individual and a family and our, our you know, the health of our nation some hope that, oh, my word, you know, I wasn't just, you know, a shameful, you know, this wasn't just awful me. There's a reason. And maybe I can survive this. Maybe I'm worth, you know, going through a, a rehab program and getting the help that I need. There are a group of doctors across the United States. Dr. Bennett Davis comes to mind who talks about this in terms of the drug epidemic being at the root cause uh, having to do with trauma. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. study being one part of that. Mm-hmm. So when you... And you work in drug and alcohol, and I've spent some time doing trainings for physicians and other groups. And what I find is a lot of them don't know about this, as you said. They don't know about the A score or they're not as well versed in trauma. What I always say is that if they're familiar with these scores and have an understanding, because they're probably not going to be able to put an ACE test underneath a new patient and say, take this test, unless they're in there for treatment or some sort of trauma mm-hmm. or a mental health issue as opposed to just a family practitioner. But if they're familiar with it, then as they're doing their intake and as they're doing their history with a patient, that maybe some of this starts to make sense or come into focus as to why they have not just drug abuse issues, but health concerns. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So how do we get other practitioners? And what have you seen uh, in terms of what I say? Because what I say is I don't think that when I go out and I do the trainings, I don't see a lot of folks that are as familiar with this as they as I would have expected. And so what do you see in your practice? I see the exact same things that you're seeing, and which is also the exact same thing that Dr. Vince Felitti first um, encountered when he went to all of his colleagues. He thought, oh my gosh, I think I, you know, I have very important information to share. And he was ridiculed and not believed. And I think when it is a topic that is uncomfortable, that we're not familiar with, that in the past we have stigmatized, you know, drug addiction and alcoholism are not comfortable uh, topics and childhood abuse is not a comfortable topic that we want to, you know, sit down and discuss. But that's the place where we have to 
look at and continue to educate ourselves. And instead of looking at a human being and saying, what is wrong with you? You know, why did you relapse again? Or, you know, why are you continuing to smoke and, you know, eat poorly? Instead of asking what's wrong with you, you know, if we can even just shift that to what happened to you, it brings a whole lot more empathy to our work with someone and with their willingness to share with us. Because this, I think that at the root of drug use and, and you know, the, the problem with our, our drug uh, epidemic is shame, secrecy, and silence. Those three things will keep drug addiction going alive and well. We have to look at it with empathy and with compassion and with education. And we as healthcare providers, it might not be at every single healthcare uh, doorstop that we have to, you know, be screening and asking about ACEs, but, you know, at every primary care visit. And, you know, there, there's a lot written about uh, resiliency and not uh, re-traumatizing someone. And so I don't have to necessarily ask an ACE score every single patient I encounter, but if I just have the sensitivity of saying, you know, did you have, you know, how was your growing up? How was your childhood? Um, did you have a tough childhood? That alone can open a door and I can usually see it in somebody's eyes. Yeah, you have no idea. Let me take a quick break. Yeah. And when we come back on the other side of the break, continue our discussion with Dr. Maloney. Before we continue our discussion, I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like State-Controlled Substance Authorities, Board of Pharmacies, Health Departments, State Attorneys General, or PDMP Administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association the executive committee is elected by the regular membership, and only regular members are eligible to serve on the executive committee. In addition to the executive committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees, and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nascsa.org. So getting back to our discussion with Dr. Maloney here at Edinburgh University on the adverse childhood experience study or score and how it impacts drug abuse uh, and those issues. And we were just talking about the break about some of the case studies that you've had. Sure. I can think of several and, you know, it, in 30 years of nursing, I'm sure that I came across multiple patients who had adverse childhood experiences, but I've only really been aware of this research in the last five years. But there's a woman who comes to my mind. She was on the drug and alcohol unit, IV injection heroin user daily for the last 15 years, just wore a blanket of shame and depression and sadness you know, on her face every day. 
And her, she shares that um, she had a, a significantly traumatic history uh, as a child with sexual abuse by multiple family members. She started using a neighbor's Vicodin at age nine, and that progressed to IV heroin by the age of 13. And it was interesting because when I asked her about her childhood, it was kind of an aha moment for her to realize, you mean, I'm not just this awful, you know, terrible human being who's just done drugs and and hurt myself and cut and self-harm all these years, maybe there was a reason why I was trying to escape all of this pain. And I do believe that it gave her a a sense of hope. Because when you feel awful about yourself and you live in shame, you just keep engaging in behaviors that keep piling on that shame. And she really was very stuck. And she just kept saying, you know, I don't know why I can't stop this. You know, I know it's ruining my life, but I can't stop it. There's a couple of points with that too, right? I mean, because we're not just talking about the uh, that aspect of trying to escape, but there's also that reward center that makes you feel better yeah. when you wind up using a drug that gives you a euphoric effect. Absolutely. As we were talking, I, I was liking talking about a bunch of different drugs, and I'd mentioned, for example, nicotine, which you know I used to smoke, so I understand this concept not in the same way, but I understand the concept that if I would have a stressful event or a stressful day. I would have a cigarette and that nicotine, even though it works generally in the opposite way physiologically with your body, it would calm me down. It would make me feel better because it hit those dopamine receptors. And isn't that what we're talking about part of this too with these folks? Absolutely. That pleasure reward motivation track of dopamine in the brain, that is temporarily, it's, it's pleasure, reward, gratification. It's the same track that is lit up when a woman breastfeeds, when you, you know, snort or inject uh, amphetamines or heroin. It or, is, or food. Or food, yeah, obesity. Something that tastes good. Yeah, so we temporarily have this pleasure, this reward, and that gets really altered when our brains are constantly under stress and trauma, and then we engage in these behaviors to, to try and alleviate that. We get a temporary, ah, 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 this feels better, pleasure, but then we have to keep seeking that. And, you know, this is the, you know, the, the hallmark of drug addiction. So let me just give you a concept that I know a lot of people would push back on this and they would say, especially law enforcement, will say, so this is just an excuse to continue bad behavior into the future because now I've told you about it and you know what's happened. So how do we answer folks that would have that bend to this topic? With education and empathy, it isn't getting us anywhere. Just continuing to judge and say, yeah, but you know, you just want to continue to use drugs. I don't think anyone wakes up one day and says, you know, I think I'm just going to destroy my life and start injecting IV heroin, lose my house, my home, my children, my family. I think we have to look at it from a different lens. You know, what has happened to you and how can we get to the root of that in understanding with a trauma-informed care approach, educating, screening, offering, understanding. So for law enforcement, you know, if they pick someone up, having a rough day, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm not a police officer. I'm a healthcare provider, but I think just well, knowing- It's very hard, but I think getting them to understand or at least get an idea of where the root cause of the problem is so that we yeah. can get people care. But we're going to have a lot of folks that are going to say, this isn't, They'll this be doesn't happen to everybody. Exactly. You know, clearly, this is not everybody. So let's. So the statistical and data again. That also speaks to that. You know the the biologic psychogenic properties of drugs. You and I, if we sat here with a zero A score and we injected a drug, we may not have the same propensity 
for addiction as someone else's neurobiology who is sitting here with an ACE score of four, five, or six, because their brains are wired differently because of that early adversity and trauma. And then they engage in those, those, you know, the psychogenic properties of that drug that says, oh, pleasure, reward, pleasure, reward. So this is why it's so important for prescribers or practitioners to understand this and screen for it. Yeah. For There's those an reasons. opioid risk tool. Simple questions. Do you have a history of mental illness in, in yourself or your family? Do you have a history of substance use disorder? Have you, do you have a history of childhood trauma? If I know, it, you know, it's essentially a mini ACE, uh, ACE kind of screen. If I know that I am an ER provider and I've got somebody with uh, acute pain, fortunately, we've moved in the direction of not you know, giving 100 pill counts in, in our narcotic prescriptions any longer. But if I know that you're sitting there with an ACE score of four, five, or six, I'm going to be really vigilant and maybe you know, an NSAID, a steroid, extra strength Tylenol, something else is a better prescribing route than an opioid for someone that I know already has a stacked deck of potentially having problems with drug addiction. You're not saying that they shouldn't prescribe opioids. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I think that that also is a person that I want to screen. I want to educate them. I tell them right up front, this is a drug that could you could become dependent on. I want to watch. And if you are finding that you are wanting it more than you should, you're wanting to take it more often, take more than is prescribed. That's kind of addressing something other than the physical pain. Absolutely. Narcotic pain relief is indicated for moderate to severe pain. And there's people out there with absolutely legitimate pain. This is looking at, I'm not medicating pain any longer when, uh, you know, physical pain, when I'm sitting here with an an A-scale score and everything feels better because I can numb out. How do you think this impacts our future in far as prescribing? And I actually think things are getting, I don't want to say better. I want to say more, I'm seeing more awareness about the ACE study and about trauma. There seems to be, it's in, I would say the the beginning stages, but it seems like people are becoming a little more in tune to it. Certainly. I think uh, the prescribing drug monitoring programs have helped. Having an awareness of, you know, drug epidemic in, in this country. Having a, you know, an ethical responsibility to prescribe appropriately and to start screening and asking, you know, how are you doing? Tell me about, you know, who you are, really knowing who your patient is and doing early screening and having providers understand that we really need to be looking through a trauma-informed lens with everybody who walks in our door because it's so common. And what would you like to see happen? Universal screening everywhere. You know, I I shared with you in our break, I have to, when I renew my RN license, I have to do a mandatory three-hour child abuse education program. When I renew my CRNP license, I have to do a mandatory opioid education. I'd like to see that go one step further. We know about child abuse, but what are we doing about ACEs and how are we implementing resiliency and trauma-informed approaches to all aspects of healthcare. This has been a great discussion. Thank you very much for sitting down with me today and doing this program. I appreciate that. Thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the Executive Board of NASCA and our Education Committee, I want to thank Dr. Susan Maloney for sharing her expertise and knowledge of the ACE study and how it impacts drug abuse. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. 
Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. You can find all of our episodes for free at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The music for this podcast provided by Joseph McDade. If you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com and you can support Joe on Patreon. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conference, and educational programs, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and move forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.